Hello, and welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Duvini. I'm the lead pastor at Asbury. We hope this episode will enrich your walk with Christ, increase your knowledge of the Bible, and just maybe entertain you a little bit. This is it, folks. This is my last podcast of 2022. I'm not going to do one next week because I'll be uh, enjoying some time off from work. We'll pick up again in the new year. But that means this is also the last podcast of our year in the Bible. I don't know about you all, but this has been just, uh, in in terms of just what we've read, I, I love doing this. I love spending the whole year going through the Bible. I hope that this has been a truly meaningful experience for you. I, I really do. I hope that you have fallen in love with the scriptures in a, a whole new way. I hope that you have not just learned a lot, but I hope that you have found the experience transformative. That you have a whole new understanding of the word of God and of the scriptures and, and a new passion for them. Because that's the goal. Not just to make sure you've read it all so that you know what it says, but but so that you encounter God in his written word. And in, in the process, allow God to change you in some way. So I sincerely hope that you have been transformed by the experience of reading the entire Bible in a year. And congratulations! This is not something most Christians do. And I find, particularly here in our part of the world, most people in our churches are biblically illiterate. They they know a few verses. Um, they might read devotional books that have like that get them to read one Bible verse at a time. But as I said around this time last year, that's just not enough. You should never, 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 never settle for reading the Bible one verse at a time. And I don't mean to disparage that as a spiritual practice because there are many wonderful ancient practices that date back to the early church where people would read very short passages of Scripture very slowly and very prayerfully and allow God to speak to them through those short passages in that way. It's a practice called Lectio Divina. I highly recommend it. It's a wonderful spiritual practice. But, but, I am convinced you have to accompany that with reading longer passages of Scripture at once because you need to see what it all says in context. We need both that short reading where we allow God to speak to us through the specific words of the page, but we also need to understand those verses in the broader context in which they were written, and that means we need to read the Bible in large chunks at a time. There's a multi-layered thing going on here where God can speak directly to our individual lives and our specific calling and our specific problems when we slowly, meditatively, prayerfully read very short passages of Scripture at once. And at the same time, we learn deep, deep, powerful truths about the world, about humanity, and about God by reading longer 
passages of Scripture and grasping the overarching point of the story. So we need both. And I hope that you have begun to see that as you've read the whole thing. I hope you've begun to see more clearly how the New Testament and the Old Testament are tied together as one cohesive whole. And I I simply hope that you've begun to fall in love with the Bible all over again, if you know, or for the first time. Maybe you've never really loved the scriptures, but I hope you do now. And I want to I want to emphasize that we're not done reading the Bible. We're going to do it again next year, just in a different way. And instead of reading through the entire Bible again in a year, we're going to do more focused reading plans. So we've got 90 days through the Gospels, which will take us up to just short of Easter. And then in the nine days leading up to Easter Sunday, we're going to go back and, and read the entire Gospel of Mark again in the days leading up to Easter, um, which sounds like a lot, but it, it's, you know, you're reading the same gospel again, but it's, it's good to be reminded as you come into Easter of the whole story as one cohesive whole of Jesus's life and ministry. And then after Easter, we're going to spend two months reading through Paul's letters. And then in the summer, we're going to do, we're going to read the Torah the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, for 100 days. Then we'll spend two weeks after that reading through the wisdom literature of the Bible. Then we'll spend 60 days reading through the major prophets, and that will take us all the way to Advent 2023, when we'll do a a focused Advent Bible reading plan. But you can see we're not going to be covering the whole Bible We're not going to read, for instance, the historical books of the Old Testament, Kings and Samuel. We're reading the Gospels. We're reading the Torah, which was the foundational text for Jesus' life and ministry. It's the foundational text for Paul's theology and thought, and it's the foundational text for all of Jewish thought. So it's good to read the Torah. We'll read the, the wisdom literature, which has a lot to teach us about how to live a good life, and then the prophets, and then we'll get into Advent. So I'm excited about it. I really, I think this is going to be a totally different experience of Bible reading, obviously, because we're not reading nearly so much of it. But it will allow us to dive a bit deeper into some of these texts and and really dig deep and spend some, some quality time with them. So I'm excited about that. So beginning January 1st, we are reading through the gospel in 90 days. We will have that reading plan uh, available up on the website. It, uh, we'll, we'll, I'm planning to have that printed out for those of you who prefer to have it printed out. But um, if you if you like to use Uversion, the the Bible reading app, those those reading plans are already on there, which is awesome. It can make that a lot easier for some of you. So. Um, and it's just 90 days through the Gospels. You'll be able to find it pretty easily. If not, just shoot me an email and I'll, I'll send you a link so you know exactly what reading plan we're going to do. So I'm excited for next year. I think it's going to be a really wonderful time for us to, to dive into Scripture in a different way. But for now, let's talk about what we are reading and what we're finishing up. So we are finishing up the year in the Bible, which means we're getting close to the end of, of Revelation. 
you know, I've been preaching on it on Sundays, and I've been trying to do my best uh, to explain the book while also tying it into Christmas because, of course, it's Advent, and I do want to make sure that we're getting something Christmassy going on. Um, and, and the reality is, I think that the 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 hidden message of Revelation actually does relate directly to Christmas and the reason we celebrate Christmas. The incarnation of Christ is the beginning of what culminates in Revelation, and we really do celebrate Christmas in large part because of the future reality promised by Revelation. And you know, just to be fair, on Christmas Eve, I am going to actually, I'm going to read from Revelation. I'm also going to read from the Gospel of Luke. We'll read the Christmas story. Because um, I don't want to freak out any Christmas visitors too much with the weird pastor who preaches on Revelation. I mean, we already had some visitors this Sunday who were coming, you know, the Sunday before Christmas. And it was our big Christmas cantata and the pastor is preaching on the number of the beast. So I've probably scared off some visitors already doing that. Um but, you know, I'm not lying when I say I love the book of Revelation and I think Christians need to read it and study it more. There's just so much truth in here that we need to hear and grasp. And so many Christians have been led astray by poor teaching and poor preaching on it. So again, we're not dealing with a discussion of of like the the end times or some sort of prediction of that because I think it's irrelevant. That's not what Revelation is not only about the end of all things, it's also about what's going on right now and what was going on in John's day. And I feel like I've covered that pretty thoroughly on Sunday mornings, right? The the mission of the church to uh witness to the nations and and by the way, if you want to understand part of why so many people are up in arms and leaving the United Methodist Church over differences in theology, that bit right there, the responsibility of the church to witness to the world, uh, to proclaim the truth of the gospel, that is a major factor. We have a responsibility to proclaim the truth to the world. And so if you are convinced that you've got people in the church who are leading the world astray. It makes sense that you wouldn't want to be part of that. That's something we can discuss more in person if you would like to sit down and have quite, I mean, I don't want to spend too much time in, in the podcast on that because I really want to focus on the end of the book of Revelation, which is, of course, the end of the Bible. And I'm actually just going to go ahead and I'm going to read. I'm going to read the final two chapters of Revelation the very end of the Bible. So it's Revelation 21 and 22. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them 
as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in a lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates, and the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the the same as its width, and he measured the city with its rod, twelve thousand stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall. 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth Chrysoprase, the eleventh Jacinth, the twelfth Amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. 
They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits and the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy in this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. And that is the final scene in the Bible. Wow. It's a lot. It's a lot to think through and process. In these two chapters, so much happens, and, and uh, we'll talk about it here a, a little bit. So first you have this beautiful scene, and you may have heard this passage or, or part of it um, read at funerals. It's part of our standard funeral liturgy. I make sure to read it uh, at every funeral that I officiate because I think it's it's hugely important to read this passage in funerals because it reminds us of our ultimate hope. So he sees, he sees the new heaven and the new earth. And that's important. Remember, our hope is not that we die and go to heaven forever and live in this incorporeal, disembodied existence forever. That's not at all what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is actually that heaven is a waiting place for us. Heaven is the dimension where God is, and we go there to wait for the resurrection. In fact, when Jesus tells his disciples in John's gospel, 
that he's going to prepare rooms for them in heaven. The word that has been translated as rooms or place, in, in Greek it's mone, and it's it's a word that you use not for a home or a final destination. It is a word that you use for like a roadside inn, a place where you stop to rest on your journey before you continue on. Heaven is not our final destination. Heaven is not our home. And and this 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 incorrect idea is is pervasive throughout modern Western Christianity, and, and because it's pervasive throughout us and through the missionaries we've seen, it's become pervasive throughout the world. But it's it's not to be found in the Bible. What is found in the Bible is that God is going to restore creation to what he always intended it to be and the veil between heaven and earth will be removed and so you have this image of the new heaven and the new earth the new creation the culmination the 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 beautiful goal to which god was always working towards and which human sin in the fall in the garden derailed way back in the beginning of the story but this is our hope this is our future the new heaven and the new earth, and then the holy city coming down from heaven to earth so that God will dwell on earth with his people. I mean, that's what John is describing here in the beginning of Revelation 21, the union of heaven and earth, God coming out of heaven to earth to dwell with us here in the resurrection. And you have as well this, this list of the kinds of people who are going to be uh, excluded from that eternal life. The faithless, the cowardly, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars. Now some of these we may not know quite what to make of them. I'm, you know, I mean, how are we going to define cowardly in our daily lives? What about, what does it mean to be detestable? Faithless, we probably understand. People who don't have faith in God. It's interesting. We probably have to define it based on other parts of the Bible. In other words, this, this list here is not necessarily meant to be the definitive explanation of who doesn't gain access to eternal life, but rather a reference to everything we've been taught in Scripture up to this point. At least that's true for these vague references, right? The cowardly, the faithless, the detestable. You can go back to the rest of Scripture and see from the rest of the Bible what might cause a person to fall into those categories. But they make a point of calling out murder, sexual immorality, uh, idolatry, lying, and sorcery, which is, you know, witchcraft and that sort of thing. And it's not quite the same thing as idolatry, but I would argue they're related. Um, 
that sort of sorcery and witchcraft stuff really ultimately is demonic in nature. Uh, and, and we don't talk about it very much because it, it, uh, it just sounds creepy and unrealistic to us. But the reality is there are people still today who, who uh, decide to practice witchcraft. And what they're practicing is not really magic. It, it's demonic in nature. Uh, and, and it's quite dangerous. And, and you can, I'm not an expert on this. I haven't, I just haven't spent much time reading up on it. But you can find plenty of, of well-respected scholars and theologians who will document experiences with true demonic activity that has been encountered through uh, witchcraft and sorcery. So that's real. Uh, and again, the, the it's called out specifically because I believe it's demonic in nature. Um, lying, obviously, you know, um, everyone lies. And if you say you're not a liar, you're lying. So, but lying periodically and then, you know, realizing that you've lied and, and feeling guilty about it, repenting of it, striving not to do it more often, right? Striving to tell the truth. I mean, that doesn't make you a liar. Uh, a, a liar is someone who lies all the time, who can never be trusted to tell the truth. Then we have the sexually immoral. And again, it's it's kind of odd that that's called out specifically in Revelation. One of the things people no- notice a lot is that Jesus doesn't actually talk about sexual immorality all that much in the Gospels, but then Paul talks about it a lot. It's mentioned a lot in the epistles. And then here in Revelation, John feels the need to call it out specifically as as one of the things that will prevent someone from gaining eternal life. And so what's going on? Well, the answer is Jesus was talking and preaching to Jews. And for all their many faults, all the many things that he had to correct in the Jewish community, um, sexual immorality was not a big one. It's not that they weren't guilty of it from time to time. It's that they understood the teaching of the law well enough that they didn't have to be taught again about sexual immorality. They didn't have to be reminded not to practice sexual immorality. They knew it. They had their own teachers doing it. So Jesus just didn't need to, to deal with that during his life in ministry. But when Paul goes to the Gentiles, well, that's a different story. Because uh, they're freaky little perverts. <laughs> he's got he's to convince them to stop. Um, you, you look at the sexual practices of ancient Roman and Greek society, and it's at first it seems kind of astonishing the sorts of things that they embraced and thought were normal, but, but really it's not that different from the way most of our culture behaves now. And so, yeah, Paul feels the need to talk about it, and, and John feels the need to, to specify it in Revelation, because once you get outside the ancient Jewish community and you're dealing with the Gentiles and the Greco-Roman culture, it becomes a big deal. And so what is sexual immorality? Well, again, you, you just have to look back to the Old Testament to find out what sexual immorality is. Um, it is, I mean, to, to, you can make this very simple. Sexual immorality, anytime the Bible uses the phrase sexual immorality, it is referring to any sexual act except for sex between a husband and his wife. In other words, the only type of sex that is not sexual immorality is the sex that's happening in heterosexual monogamous marriage. That's, I mean, I mean, there's just no argument that that's what the Bible means. Um, 
you won't find any respectable biblical scholar who would disagree with that. You'll find plenty of non-respectable ones who who will try and argue the point, but they're they're just flat out entirely wrong. Um, the Bible is uh, remarkably consistent on this point. Um, in fact, even as Paul is talking to the Gentiles and, and explaining to them the sorts of things that the Jews do that the Gentiles don't have to anymore, and he's he's talking about how they can be flexible in some things. The one thing Paul never bends on is the, the sexual morals of, of Judaism. Uh, Paul, Paul seems extremely convinced, unshakably convinced, that those sexual morals are still in effect. So, um, so, so that's what it means. Sexual immorality is any sex other than the sex happening between a husband and a wife. And we can, we can also look into the Gospels and see that when Jesus does mention this, he 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 takes the the Old Testament ideas of sexual immorality and actually intensifies them and says, "Look, now it's not just enough to to not actually sleep with someone who's not your wife. If you even look." At a woman who is not your wife with lust in your heart, you are guilty of adultery. So Jesus actually takes the sexual immorality of, of the Old Testament and intensifies it and makes it more strict. Uh, we have to take this seriously, my friends, that there is nowhere in the Bible where um, the, the, the teaching on, on sex is lifted or lightened or loosened. This is clearly, clearly an important thing to God. I mean, it's important enough to call it out as one of the as one of these specific things that can bar someone from eternal life. I mean, it's ranked up there with murder. Think about that for a second. We do not take this seriously enough, not at all. It's ranked with murder. And, you know, in, in modern conversation about this, we always tend to focus on homosexuality. Um, but the Bible does not actually single that out as being any worse than any other form of sexual immorality. Adultery, premarital sex, fantasizing about someone you are not married to, uh, these all fall into that category. They're all treated equally harshly. And I do not have the time in this podcast to dive into the theology behind why, but there is a rich and deep theology behind it, and I am going to be doing some teaching on that in the new year in an in-person Bible study. Uh, probably in February when I get back from Israel, we'll do a couple of weeks of, of in-person, actually a book study. I've got books that I'll, I'll be using for it as well as, as the Bible. Um, because I, I think it's so, so important for us to understand not just that it's wrong, but the the deep, deep, reasons why it's wrong and they're there but we just on a whole on the whole the church in general has not done a good job of explaining that so that's that there you go there's your list of what gets what bars you from eternal life right being faithless being uh detestable which again i you can just go back and read through the new testament and find the things um and then it references right there portion will be in the lake of fi- that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So you have the first death where your body physically dies, and then you're somewhere waiting for the resurrection. Everyone's raised from the dead, and then the people who are kind of unrighteous face this second death. 
Now we can interpret this in a couple of ways. One, again, remember this is very symbolic language. So I, th I think we need to move away from the idea of hell as a place of conscious, fiery torment, because this is very symbolic language. So we can interpret this two ways. And I'm not going to recommend one over the other because I, I, I don't know which one I think is right. I think they're both actually very, very accurate interpretations of the Bible. I think they both fit with the biblical warnings about what happens to those who are counted unrighteous in the end. And they both fit with the idea of a loving God who does not want to force people who reject him to be in his presence forever. So you have this lake that burns with fire and sulfur, right? And you have all these references from the Gospels where Jesus talks about burning away the chaff, right? So one possible interpretation is that those who die and who are counted as unrighteous, who, who have rejected God for their whole life, who fall into these categories of people who are barred from eternal life, it's possible they just cease to exist. Uh, this idea is called annihilationism. Um, so it's possible that they simply cease to exist, that they have rejected God altogether. And in doing so, they're, they're corrupted, they're evil, and they cannot exist in the presence of a holy God. And, and in the end, God's presence will be everywhere. There will be no more restraint of his presence, and so they simply cannot continue to exist. That's one interpretation. It, it fits with all the language that Jesus uses, right? It's just that, okay, the fire he references is eternal. The existence within the fire is not, right? The fire burns you up. Again, it's metaphorical language, but it, but it fits the, the metaphor well. And it fits with the idea of a loving God who is merciful and who says, you know what, okay, fine, you've, you've rejected me. You don't want to spend eternity with me. I grant you release from existence. That's more loving than an eternity of conscious, active torment. The other possibility, and, and within this, there are kind of two different things you can talk about. The other possibility is that, that they continue to exist in sort of some other dimension, which we would call hell, um, which is characterized by God's complete and total absence. And, you know, on the face of it, that sounds not so bad until you really begin to think about what God's complete and total absence would mean. It would mean that there is literally nothing good there. No peace, no happiness, no joy, no hope. nothing but broken humans living in their brokenness. If you want a really good sort of thought experiment about what that might be like and about why we can be pretty confident that there will be people who are condemned to such an existence, um, C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, is, is the best thing I've ever read on the subject. Um, and I won't say much more on it other than to go and, and read through that book. One other way I've, I've heard of interpreting this from theologians that I, I really respect is that um, those who are 
you know, excluded from eternal life, who are found unrighteous, uh, continue to exist, but it, it's like they've lost their humanity. They have this one moment of incredible grief when they finally realize what it is they're losing, what it is that they have rejected, but they they continue to exist in some other way, but they've lost their, their humanity. It's almost like they're animals. Um, I don't know if I buy that one. I, I, I don't really see, I mean, it's, it's a possibility. I don't really see much in the Bible to, to point to that direction. I think the first two descriptions are probably the two most likely candidates for what's going to happen to people who are not going to be with Jesus forever. And it's important to emphasize this is not an angry, wrathful God choosing to condemn people. This is people who are choosing to walk away from God, to reject God. Even when they have seen the fullness of who he is, they, there will be people who choose to reject him. And again, I highly recommend that you read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis to, to explore how that might be the case, that someone who who sees the truth and the goodness of God and all that he has to offer would still choose to to reject him. Um, fantastic book. Every Christian should read that book. It's a really, really short book. It's a really easy read, but highly, highly recommend it. So let's move on from talk of hell, because really that's not actually the important part of, of this passage. And we're getting, this is like the longest podcast I've done in a while. So then you have this image of Jerusalem, and it's like, uh, it's it's kind of odd, right? The, the city is a cube. It is a perfect cube with 12 gates, right, for the 12 apostles. The number 12 is thrown out a lot because, of course, it ties into the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles. There's lots of symbolism in there, but it's just indicative of this is now the new Israel. Uh, there's There's all this reference of pure gold and jewelry. And again, it's not necessarily meant to be a literal description of what it's going to look like. It is a reference to something of unimaginable beauty and purity. And it's not necessarily a literal, it, it, again, it's just a, it's a symbol for God coming down out of heaven to dwell on earth with his people. It's the new heaven and the new earth, the new creation that we will live in for eternity. And then you have this beautiful image in 22, of the river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God. And this is this is a direct reference to Ezekiel 47, right? That wonderful, wonderful prophecy of the river flowing out of the temple and into the Dead Sea and bringing life and healing wherever it goes. And again, you have this image to tie it in. The, so you have this beautiful idea of the water of life flowing from God's presence, right? Just awesome, awesome stuff. And so you have this whole thing this whole thing is this story of God's going to come down from heaven to earth to live with his people. The, the veil between these two dimensions is going to cease to exist. There will be no more separation between heaven and earth. This is the glorious new creation that awaits us. And so the final scene in the Bible is about the rewards for the righteous. It, it, it's about... Evil is punished and dealt with finally. Those who are righteous will, will live with God forever in the new creation. This glorious, beautiful, life-giving, life-sustaining new creation. And it doesn't talk that much about, okay, here's the, you know, the majority of the people are going to go over here to help. Uh, the righteous few are over here. There's all this talk, even in the midst of these passages about judgment, there's all this talk about redemption and the waters of life for healing 
And so I, I think that while it's abundantly clear that, you, that, that, that God will not offer universal salvation, there are people who will be condemned for eternity, whether that means they cease to exist, whether that means they go off into some other dimension where, there is, where God is not present at all, something like that's going to happen. Because people reject God. People consciously reject God. People become so absorbed in, in the things that have really stolen their hearts that even when they see God in his fullness, they will reject God. And again, you have to read The Great Divorce to understand what I'm talking about here. But, but, God is trying to reach everybody. And, and I think we have to accept as well that salvation is God's business. I think we are all going to be very surprised by some of the people we encounter in the new creation. And I think we can have hope. I think we can have hope that even if God won't save everybody, even if large numbers of people will reject him altogether, I think we can have hope that God will save a majority of humanity. Somehow, someway. But I think we also have to accept that ultimately that's beyond our pay grade. Our job is not to determine who gets saved and who doesn't. It's not to tell people if they're, if they're on the path. Our, our, our job is to proclaim the truth of God to the world. Our job is to proclaim that God is coming. God has dealt with our sin. God has conquered death. Death itself is meaningless. God is the Lord of all creation. He rules the world even now. Governments only exist at his sufferance. That he is coming back to remove the veil between heaven and earth in its in its totality, and the new creation is coming. That's our job. And th this is why we are a people of hope and joy. No matter what, we know that he's coming back. This great climactic final scene of the Bible is not of God wrathfully destroying the world, it is of God redeeming the world. It is God coming down from heaven to earth, just like he did on that first Christmas. Do you see the connection? He came down to earth once already, humbly and helpless as an infant. And he's coming down to earth again, but this next time, he's coming down as our king. I can't wait. I mean, I can. I like my life. But if Jesus were to come back tomorrow, I'd be thrilled. Because it, it's, it would mean all things are made new. Now, you may have just gotten a, a little miniature foretaste of what I'm going to preach on Christmas Eve, so don't be surprised if you hear some of these same points repeated. But that's Revelation. That's the end of the Bible. I hope, I hope that you have had an incredible time reading through the Bible with me this year. 
And if I don't see you in church on Christmas Eve, Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. We'll be back with a new podcast in January.